Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. I am Timothy George, the Dean of the Divinity School and usually the host, but today a special host for a special series on faith, work, and economics, Dr. Mark Devine. I'm Mark Devine, professor here at Beeson Divinity School. We're so happy to have with us today Dr. Greg Forster a program director for Faith, Work, and Economics at the Kern Family Foundation. Greg, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. I know that you're doing work for the Kern Family Foundation, and uh, why don't you share a little bit with our audience the purpose and goals of this program that you're involved with there in Wisconsin? I uh, am leading a program that involves 18 evangelical seminaries uh, from across the country, and represent every point on the evangelical spectrum. Uh, We do it all from Presbyterians to Pentecostals, is what I like to say. Uh, And the goals of the Kern Family Foundation, uh, we have always had a program uh, focused on pastoral ministry. Uh, One of our benefactors is Bob Kern. He grew up in the parsonage uh, of uh, his father's uh, ministry in Osage, Iowa. His father was a Baptist pastor, and uh, he learned from a very early age growing up in the parsonage the crucial importance of a pastor, not only to the local church, but to the life of the community. So one of our defining uh, one of our defining values at the Kern Family Foundation is that the, the pastor and the local church should be a positive influence in their communities, that pastors are not only necessary to their churches and the lives of their congregations, but that pastors are necessary to congregations, uh, sorry, to communities, that uh, the pastor has a moral and spiritual influence in the larger community beyond the walls of the church uh, and extending far beyond those who are official church members. And uh, it has been a real struggle for pastors to play that role uh, in the culture today. So we have been, uh, for for some years now, examining what can we do that will help uh, pastors reconnect with uh, the culture, the larger culture of their communities outside the church. And uh, increasingly, we've been looking at work and the economy as a place where the faith needs to be reconnected. Uh, going back to the beginning of our foundation, uh, the other major thing we've been involved in besides pastors has been uh, preparing people to be good, uh, virtuous workers. That we have uh, had an education reform program uh, and even a, a program for engineers uh, that were centered around helping people to understand uh, work as something that is essential to their lives, helping people to understand that good, honest work that serves the community and meets human needs is really a central focus of a good life well lived. And uh, so we've had education reform programs aimed at uh, preparing people uh, with academic excellence and strong character. We've had uh, engineering programs uh, focused on helping engineers to uh, understand their work as uh, something that serves the good of the community. Uh, and and yet for many years our program on pastoral ministry was not connecting to these uh, these concerns about work and and helping people to understand their role in the economy as something that has moral uh, significance 
And uh, for pastors, we can even go beyond uh, moral significance and begin to talk about the spiritual uh, significance of it and uh, ask what what does uh, God have to say about this area of life? And so uh, a while back, we began to examine how could we better serve our pastoral ministry program by connecting it to uh, work uh, and even to uh, to the broader economy. And we've now, uh, in the last couple of years, actually, uh, we've become so convinced that this is a key missing piece uh, for the church and also uh, for our communities, that we've retooled our pastoral ministry programming uh, so that it's really focused on this uh, faith, work, and, and economic connection so that we can help pastors make disciples who are going to go out and live their lives in the community uh, in a way that's fruitful and in a way that serves God and serves their neighbor. Okay, as we as we think about that here at Beeson, we're especially uh, interested. I mean, our whole all of our efforts here are focused on uh, equipping uh, those that God calls to serve in the churches, and particularly uh, pastors. In fact, here at Beeson, uh, we like to say we're we want to uh, produce pastors who can preach. Um, how might the preaching of a pastor be altered or changed uh, if they? Um, you know, are uh, tapped into the resources that, that Kern seeks to provide? Well, I think that's a question that a lot of people ask us when we first get involved in uh, talking at a seminary or a local church. Uh, and, and the first thing we often have to do is convince people why this matters. I remember uh, a while back when we were first exploring this intersection, uh, I was speaking to one fairly well-known evangelical uh, author uh, who said to me point blank, you will never get pastors to do this. You will never get pastors to talk about work from a faith perspective. He said, first of all, they'll never understand it because pastors live in a different world from the rest of us, and they don't know what the, the secular workplace is like. But even if you got them to understand it, uh, they've only got 52 sermons a year, and they have a lot that they have to cover. How many sermons a year? He actually asked me this. How many sermons a year do you think are going to be about work? Uh, well, that was a startling moment for me, uh, and looking back on it a few years later, I think that I can uh, take a little bit of uh, hopefully godly pride uh, in saying that we, uh, we're actually uh, confounding his expectation. Uh, and I think that the key to it is this, uh, that most of life is work. When you take out people's hours sleeping and you look at their waking hours, uh, first, you have work in the workplace, and then you have work in the home because uh, I've never had any difficulty convincing people that the home is a place where work is important, that a lot of work takes place in the home. So you add work on the job, work in the home, and then work in various other places around the community. You may pitch into your kid's school, uh, or you may pitch in at a civic association, and uh, God help us, you may even do some work for the church. So uh, work actually takes up a huge majority of people's waking hours. So uh, I, I didn't think of the snappy comeback when this guy told me pastors will never get it. But what I wish I had said at that time was uh, this is about living all of life for Jesus. That should be in 52 out of 52 sermons. You should absolutely have 52 out of 52 sermons each year uh, touch on how we follow Jesus in all of our lives. Uh, and most of that is going to be work. 
Now, a, to come back to your question, uh, what does it look like in practice? I think uh, there's some low-hanging fruit, first of all, uh, that's fairly simple and easy to do. Uh, one is workplace applications. Uh, that uh, There's virtually no message you can preach that does not have an application to the workplace. Uh, you want to talk about uh, anything from forgiveness as a subject to uh, being virtuous and avoiding sinful behavior to uh, transforming, transforming your heart with the gospel to almost any, any message you want to preach. Uh, that's got workplace application. And trust me, the people in the pews notice if you don't connect these things to their lives. Uh, if all of the applications that you bring in the sermon have to do with a very narrow range of, of applications, and, and you're leaving most of their life out when you make applications, they'll notice that. So just making the effort to have an example or an application in every sermon that has to do with the workplace simply establishes that the workplace is a place where God is honored, and the workplace is a place where our lives matter. Uh, and how we live our lives matters matters to God, uh, so that's a really easy that's a really easy thing to do. But you'd be amazed how uh, uh, how difficult it is sometimes uh, for pastors to reorient their thinking around this and actually uh, embrace it. Um, another piece of low hanging fruit. Uh, this is not about the sermon, but about the congregational prayer. Uh, do we pray about our working needs? Uh, because boy, do people need prayer to cover their working lives. Uh, and again, if if your congregational prayer doesn't mention most of life, uh, then that sends a signal about what you value and about what you think is service to Christ. So if we think that uh, the the large majority of life that is work is service to Christ, we should be praying about it. We should be bringing it uh, before the Lord. But then at a deeper level, since you asked about sermons, I'll focus on sermons. This actually has applications in all kinds of places in church life. Uh, but I think at a deeper level, uh, there is a deep theology of work that's just waiting to be rediscovered. And the American church is actually starting to rediscover it in a very exciting way. There's been a whole raft of books about faith and work. Uh, there's a faith and work movement that has been around for a long time, uh, many decades, uh, and it has produced a number of books, uh, but many of these books are are written by lay people who are not biblical scholars or theologians, and and they are focused on practical application. Uh, and I think that's great, but we're now starting to see even uh, the the biblical scholars and theologians are getting into the text in a very deep and rich way and uncovering how work is central to the whole biblical narrative uh, right from the beginning to the end. Uh, so my friend Tom Nelson, who's a pastor in Kansas City, uh, will talk about the beginning of the biblical narrative in Genesis is all about work. God is introduced to us as a worker. Uh, because it says that God worked when he made the world uh, and then rested. And uh, as you will hear many people in the faith and work movement point out, that's, that's a radical departure from other religions uh, and, and philosophical systems in the world, that Christianity and, and, and before it Judaism uh, are, were unique in presenting a God who works, because in other religions, uh, God or the gods do not work because work is bad. Work is a curse. Uh, in many religions, human beings are made because the gods don't want to work and they want, they create human beings to work for them so they don't have to. 
but that is not uh, that is not the biblical story. And then uh, Tom will go on and talk about how work is central to the image of God. Uh, and then uh, sort of bring out how work is central. These Hebrew words that describe work and integrity and having integrity uh, are, are some of the central themes that, uh, uh, that, that play out from Genesis right on, uh, right on through the whole biblical story. Uh, and there've been a, there's been a number of other books about this. Uh, so I really think the more we get into this uh, biblical story of work and how work is central uh, to the biblical understanding of the universe and the meaning of human life, uh, I think uh, this will become much more than a sort of superficial, let's add a, an application about the workplace to my sermon on forgiveness. What we can actually see is that even the subject of forgiveness can be seen, or, or any other theological subject, can be seen in a new light once we understand what human beings were made for. Uh, that that we were made uh, to transform the creation for God, to bring the creation into uh, uh, into conformity with what God wants it to be, and to develop the creation order uh, through our work. Uh, and that sin came in and, and disrupted this process. Now, the the if the topic of sin is connected to the topic of work, then forgiveness is connected to the topic of work. Um, my friend Scott Ray, who's a professor out of Biola, actually wrote an article about uh, the economic terminology that Jesus uses to describe salvation. Uh, that when when even on the cross, when Jesus said it is finished, the Greek word that's in the text there is a commercial economic term for paying a debt. Uh, so that even redemption at the cross is using economic language. Uh, and he wrote an article for our newsletter sort of playing out some of the implications of that. So I think the, you know, the deeper you look here, the more you find uh, a, a real, um, uh, a, a, a hidden continent that we need to rediscover uh, and, 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 and explore. Well, Greg, um, the, the, the program that, that you are working in uh, focuses not just on the uh, intersection of faith and work, but also faith, work, and economics. And uh, when I think of my own theological formation, uh, and also as my of my identity as an evangelical, um, it seems that I have been presented with two options to think about uh, economics and money in particular. Uh, on the one hand, uh, there's the prosperity gospel that so many uh, evangelicals have embraced, and and they really uh, they find traction in the Bible in all those places where where money uh, and wealth are spoken of positively and as a blessing of God. Um, and then there was another option uh, among evangelicals where money and and wealth are sort of treated as as enemies or a necessary evil. And uh, and they get traction in the Bible as well because uh, money is warned about in so many ways. Money, the love of money, is a root of many kinds of evil. You cannot serve God and Mammon. Uh, how how does your foundation? How what resources do you have to help us think think better and more more? Uh, you know, really trying to take seriously the whole Bible, the message of the whole Bible about money. Yeah, I think that's a deep subject, and um, we are not theologians at the foundation, but we are blessed to work with uh, many theologians across the country, and we're cultivating a conversation among our uh, faculty about this uh, to help them really wrestle with some of the complexity and the serious issues. 
Um, you know, the, uh, not long ago, I heard David Miller uh, of the Princeton uh, uh, Faith and Work Institute called the Avodah Institute. He said, uh, when it comes to economics and a biblical perspective on economics, anyone who tells you it's simple is trying to, t- trying to sell you something. Uh, and so we take that very seriously. We're not we're not looking to give you five can bullet points uh, on on those on these economic subjects. But that having been said, I think there are some basic truths that we can all come together around. Um, and and you've you've touched on some of them. Uh, on in terms of the prosperity gospel, I think the key problem here is that we this this approach disconnects flourishing the flourishing of human life from work. Uh, and that the biblical narrative, uh, which is also confirmed in in longstanding Christian thought uh, and in our everyday experience, uh, is that uh, the design of the world is that you you get flourishing, you get uh, the the uh, the flourishing of the individual human being, the flourishing of the household, the flourishing of the business, the flourishing of the neighborhood and local community and national community comes from people rolling up their sleeves and, and, and getting to work. Um, and and the, the admonitions to work are all over the Bible. They are extensive in Christian tradition. Uh, and if you look around the look at the world around you and see what's succeeding, well, somebody somewhere is rolling up their sleeves and, and getting to work. Uh, and I think the um, the basic problem uh, in the prosperity gospel is this disconnection from work. Uh, now, there's a lot more to be said about the prosperity gospel, but I, I'll, I think I'll, I'll leave it there. I wrote an article recently uh, for our newsletter about uh, the prosperity gospel, and a friend of mine tweeted a link to that article with the following statement, don't mistake precepts for promises, and then a link to my article. And I thought, Oh man, he summarized my article better than I didn't have. I didn't have a statement that pithy and cool in my article. I wish I'd thought of that. Uh, so I'm struggling with this envy problem. But uh, I think that's a very good. It's a very good uh, warning that that in our theological conversation that we're cultivating, when we see these statements in the Bible that hard work brings success in various ways. Um, you can you can generalize it by saying uh, virtue leads virtue leads to success or virtue leads to flourishing, uh, and you read the book of Proverbs and it's just almost every you know almost every line in the book of Proverbs virtue leads to vir- flourishing virtue leads to flourishing virtue leads to flourishing virtue leads to flourishing. These are general precepts. They are not individual promises that every single person who is virtuous is going to have flourishing. It's a broad generalization. Uh, human communities in order to pass on their values and, and, and provide moral formation for people, have got to have precepts. They've got to have general statements about how the universe works. And if you can't make these broad generalizations, you're not going to be able to pass on your values to your children. Uh, because that's how moral formation works in community. But these precepts are not individual promises. Uh, uh, you know, one thing... I heard somebody say uh, uh, that you, you could you could apply this to the book of Job, that the uh, the false comforters in the book of Job uh, are they sound like the book of Proverbs. They say, well, Job, don't you know that virtue leads to flourishing? Uh, uh, so the, the mistake they make is uh, in in um, in in thinking that these are these are promises that anybody can can claim. Now, you've identified a problem in the opposite direction, a hostility to wealth. Um, and while obviously we do need to be extremely careful 
because wealth creates temptation. Any type of success creates temptation uh, for broken people like us, for fallen people like us. Uh, any kind of success creates temptation. Uh, but we cannot therefore say that success is therefore bad or flourishing, excuse me, is no concern of the church. Because, again, the biblical story is that human beings were made uh, to work for flourishing. This goes back to Genesis 1. Uh, and you can trace it through the entire biblical story right to the end in Revelation 22, where uh, what are, we're restored to work for flourishing. Uh, so this is the whole, the whole story centers on human beings are made to work for flourishing. Uh, they're made to love each other. Uh, and, and love God and love each other. And by doing work that, that expresses that, that love for God and neighbor, uh, we, we create flourishing. We make a world that, that is more and more and more and more and more what God wants it to be. Uh, and so uh, approaches that have an, a hostility to flourishing uh, or a deep suspicion of it that leads the church to turn inward and reject the flourishing of our communities as something that has anything to do with with our churches, uh, uh, you are le you are leaving out discipleship in the the places where people live their lives. People live their lives in their human communities. They don't live their lives inside the walls of the church. And what does it mean to be a Christ follower uh, on the assembly line or sitting in a cubicle filling out reports? Or doing whatever it is that, you, or you know, or changing diapers and picking up toys off the living room floor. What does it mean to be a Christ follower in these areas? Well, uh, uh, one of the central things that is absolutely indispensable to that is work for flourishing. Uh, work for the flourishing of your household. Work for the flourishing of your workplace. Work for the flourishing of your neighborhood. Uh, and if we're going to teach that, if we're going to teach people, you know, uh, uh, get those reports filled out and, and do that job on the assembly line and do it honestly and, and with diligence and fortitude and generosity to your neighbor and all these things, um, then the, the net result of that is going to be flourishing for the community. The net result of that is going to be uh, uh, societies that generate wealth. Uh, and in fact, historically, the wealth creation that the modern economy uh, is, is so amazing at, at creating that, that if you look at the economic history of the world, uh, it, it's incredibly impoverished for, for thousands and thousands of years as far back as history allows us to look. And then suddenly in the late 18th, early 19th century, uh, it just shoots up, the amount of wealth in the world just shoots up straight up. It's, it's, it's a phenomenal graph. Uh, and if you go on Google, you can find all kinds of different economic historians have graphed this, and the graphs all look the same. Uh, and, and the origin of that is a culture that's impacted by the Reformation, which taught people, go roll up your sleeves and do good work that serves your neighbor and makes the world a better place, because that's what, that's what God is restoring you to in Christ. Uh, and, and those cultures started the engine of wealth creation uh, in the modern world. Uh, now, those, those engines of wealth creation got embodied in cultures which then spread to other places and aren't always, you know, Christian in their character. Uh, but that's the historical, you know, the most important historical origin of it. Uh, and, and I think uh, the, the disruptions we're seeing in our world today are largely because people are forgetting where all this comes from. Uh, that it's people rolling up their sleeves and doing work that serves their neighbor and makes the world a better place. That's where the wealth creation comes from. So I think the church can do a, uh, an incredible service uh, to the community 
by uh, avoiding a prosperity gospel approach that fails to affirm work and avoiding a sort of um, uh, an approach that's negative towards wealth and flourishing that says go work hard but you know don't get rich because uh, there's a contradiction deep in the heart of that um, uh, by, by bringing our communities a vision of what it means to work for flourishing and if we do that then people are going to ask well where'd you get that idea what's the story that makes sense of this uh, and I think that's going to lead them back back to their churches and pastors I think this this word of uh, flourishing is, is is an important one, and 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 one that um, uh, I think you know it cries out for work and you know how how do we really define this and and so forth. And it raises questions about, among other things, uh, how how Christians should think about poverty, um, and uh, and wealth. And that uh, can raise questions about, uh, you know, economic policy and so forth. Uh, in your the work, your work with the foundation and this equipping of pastors and educating of pastors, um, uh, are there? How does this this word economics play into it? What what are you seeking to to teach pastors and equip them? Uh, in what ways do you want to equip them so that they can um, uh, explain to their congregants about flourishing and, and God's revealed will about these these matters? That's a big question. Let me break it up into a couple of parts so that I can uh, uh, digest it a little more easily. First, flourishing is absolutely a central concept here. Uh, what do we, and I think we have to stop and ask, what do we mean by flourishing? What does it mean to flourish? And sometimes when we talk about economic growth, we can assume that uh, just producing more money equals flourishing. And that's, that's a danger, and we don't want to fall into that trap. So one of the principles that, that our community has, has identified uh, is that uh, economic success is not about making money, but about creating value for people. Uh, and we really have to distinguish between creating value and making money. That it's possible to make money in ways that don't make anyone better off. Uh, and, and that's something we don't want people to do. That's something we need to challenge. When we, when we see someone making money but doing it in a way that doesn't actually produce anything that's of real value. Uh, what we want is for people to understand economic success in terms of creating value for people, making the world better off through our work. That's economic success. The successful person is the person who has created lots of value for people. And it may or may not lead to financial success. It will generally, uh, but it will not for everybody. It will not in, in every instance. Um, Dallas Willard, uh, uh, just shortly before he went to be with the Lord, came to our faculty retreat a year ago uh, in our, our seminary program. And uh, he talked about two different visions of flourishing that are in conflict in our culture. One understanding of flourishing is to be in right relationship with other people. Uh, and other people includes God, because God is personal, uh, but it also includes your neighbor. So to be in right relationship with God and other human beings is uh, flourishing. That's what it means to have flourishing. Uh, and then the competing understanding of flourishing is to satisfy your natural desires. Now, I think there is a depth of wisdom in this 
sort of very simple opposition between the two things we mean by flourishing. Uh, do we mean satisfying your natural desires or do we mean being in right relationship? And then he began to unpack, and, and here I'll get to the, the other parts of your question, which are what do we want to affirm in economics? And then particularly, what do we want to say about how we help the poor? Uh, if we are talking about being in right relationship with others, uh, that first of all, he talked about the implications for the family and the household, uh, that when people have broken relationships in their households, uh, it is, there is almost nothing that can make up for that, uh, at least naturally. Uh, there is, there, you know, the gospel obviously speaks to everything, but in the natural sense, there is really nothing that can substitute for having grown up in a, a household with broken relationships or absent relationships. And he said this is one of the major reasons people turn to gratifying their natural desires because uh, uh, they, they can't get those relationships fixed. And then um, work and uh, jobs is also essential to being in right relationship. And he talked about how people, uh, Paul repeatedly insisted that he supported himself and that other people need to support themselves, that you should live off the, the, the produce of your own labor, that you should eat what you, what you earn through your work. And now obviously there are people who are not able to support themselves, and we're, we're not talking about that here, but those who are able to support themselves must support themselves. And what, what, what Dallas talked about in his talk is that this is not a sort of uh, uh, hectoring, pharisaical club that I'm going to hit you over the head with. They said this is necessary to love. This is the posture of love, as, as he put it, that, that, that we, sh we shall uh, not ask other people to support us, but we shall support ourselves through our own work. That's a basic requirement of love, to be in right relationship with other people. That if you are living off of money that you did not earn through your own work, uh, you are not uh, uh, in a, a right relationship with your neighbor and you're not manifesting love for your neighbor because you are taking from them uh, in some form or fashion. Uh, and, and it may not be a forced taking. You may be that they're generously giving you their funds, but you should not take advantage of that if you are able to support yourself. It's not right. Uh, uh, and this is where I think we, we can speak to something broader than merely public policy. Even if somebody's willing to generously give you privately money to live off of, uh, you should you should want to support yourself if you love your neighbor. Uh, I was I heard a pastor recently tell me about a uh, an, an occasion where one person, uh, one pastor from a, a relatively impoverished community, uh, was was talking about people uh, who who were totally disconnected from the expectation that they would work to support themselves. Uh, and what a great challenge that is. And another pastor from a different community said, yeah, I deal with that challenge all the time too. And the first pastor said, but wait a minute, you're from an affluent suburb where everybody has plenty of money. Uh, how does this, you know, and, and they all have jobs. You don't have lots of unemployed people. How does this apply to you? And the, and the second pastor says, yeah, but all their teenage kids want, they, they expect everything to be handed to them and they don't think that they need to earn anything through their own work. Uh, and, and it's a colossal problem that all their, all the children in these affluent families have had no expectations set for them that their needs should be provided through their own work. And boy, is that going to be a huge problem when they grow up and, and enter the workforce. 
and so I, I thought that was a, that was a very telling sort of cross cultural encounter where this is not just about uh, neighborhoods where there are no jobs and people are not working. Uh, that there is a deeper problem that we are developing a culture where people expect to have their needs taken care of, but they don't expect to have to work. Uh, and that is that is absolutely not the biblical approach, as difficult as that may be uh, to say to people, that uh, the posture of love for your neighbor is that you should want to work to work to have what you're going to consume uh, and that you should produce more than you consume. Uh, uh, that you should you should not be a net consumer. Uh, now there may be periods of your life where you can't work, or that you you know, and and that that can be at the beginning of your life. It can be at the end of your life. It can be you know a period of sickness. Right. That's this is this is why traditionally we used to affirm saving, right? To have a nest egg and be ready for that kind of thing. Uh, but over the course of a natural lifetime, you should be a net producer. You should leave more than you consumed from your life. Uh, because if you multiply, if people are consuming more than they produce, multiply that by all the people and then run that forward through time, what's the net result? What happens? Everything collapses, right? Because this generation is going to leave an empty shell for the next generation. Then the next generation is going to consume the shell and leave nothing to the generation after that. Uh, we need to not just think about our children, but our grandchildren. We need to think about what kind of cultural dynamic are we creating for multiple generational uh, steps here and not just consume all the wealth that our fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers have built up, consume all the wealth and, and just shrug our shoulders to our grandchildren and say, well, you're on your own. Uh, we should be we should be net producers over the course of our lifetimes. Now, so that's in economics, uh, I think. Uh, I, I, I like some language that I've borrowed and slightly adapted from, from Tom Nelson, who I mentioned before. Uh, he talked about um, contribution and compensation, uh, that in your job, uh, it's, it's good and right to be compensated for your work and paychecks are good and important and you have to provide for your household. But we also need to think about the contribution that you make through your work. What does your work do that makes other people better off? Are you making a contribution through your work? You should, you should be seeking work that compensates, but you should be seeking work that compensates because it makes a contribution. Uh, another, another set of C words that uh, I love these C words. They alliterate, so they must be biblically sound and, 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 and preachable because that's our evangelical theology. So if it alliterates, it's right. Uh, he also talked about cooperation and competition. Uh, that competition has a place in the economy. You know, we want Coke and Pepsi to compete with each other because if they don't, then they're not going to serve their customers. You know, if, 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 if the customers of Coke cannot go buy their product from Pepsi instead, uh, then people will provide shoddy products at high prices and, and nobody will be better off. So it's good that competition happens. But at a deeper level, uh, we want to affirm cooperation. We want to affirm that the economy is a place where people work together uh, by exchanging their work with one another. You know, I make, sh I make shoes and you make shirts uh, and I, I sell my shoes and I use the money to buy your shirts. Uh, so your work contributes to my well-being and my work contributes to your well-being. Uh, and then you know, uh, an economist named P.J. Hill uh, at Wheaton uh, likes to say, you know, the folks, at, the folks at Coke and Pepsi are actually competing to cooperate. Uh, that everybody at Coke is cooperating to deliver a product to you and everybody at Pepsi is cooperating to deliver a product to you. And when they compete, they're competing to see who cooperates better. 
So I think we want to bring that appreciation of cooperation back into our economic uh, thinking while also making, making a place for legitimate co- uh, competition because uh, markets really are uh, a tool that can be used to serve people well. And then uh, uh, the third thing Tom was talking about was capacity for compassion, uh, that if we want to have compassion on those who are in need, we need to have the capacity to do it. Uh, and he pointed to the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he said that Good Samaritan had a lot of money that he invested in taking care of the man who was beaten up by robbers. He got that money from somewhere. You know, that money came from somewhere. Where did it come from? Well, you know, ultimately money comes from somebody doing work that produces that money. Uh, and so we need we need to think in terms of uh, we've got to have an economic system uh, that em- empowers people for productive work so that we can have a capacity to be generous to those who are not able to work. You know, the people who can't work, uh, who's, how are they going to be taken care of? We got to have capacity for that. And it's the working that's going to provide that. Uh, he points, uh, I think, to Ephesians 4.28, where it talks about, uh, let the thief no longer steal, but do, on- do honest work with his hands so that he can have something to share with those who are in need. So you've got, you've got, uh, so A, don't steal, right? Stop in, stop injustice, stop unfair treatment of people, right? Respect people's rights, uh, respect human dignity of all people. Uh, so stop doing things that are wrong. Do honest work with your hands, be productive. And then with the wealth that's the fruit of that, don't fall in love with the fruit of your own hands, uh, but instead uh, be generous with it and, and help those who cannot work to support themselves. And I think uh, so finally coming around to the part of your question about poverty, it's poverty is a, a difficult problem. And that's no surprise to anybody who's ever taken a look at it. But I look back at some of the uh, some of the rhetoric that was used 50 and 60 years ago, both in the civil community and in the church, about how we were going to go in and create these giant anti-poverty programs that were going to get rid of poverty within our lifetime. Uh, It's shocking to me. You go back and read some of the things that people said in the 50s and 60s. They were supremely confident that they could eradicate poverty within their lifetime. Well, we found out that it's hard uh, and that it's a broken world and that these are complicated questions and that you can't just go in uh, with your shiny system that you designed in a, you know, and you had a blueprint that was going to work perfectly. But but life confounds that sort of thing. Uh, and I think the church absolutely needs to be taking action on behalf of those who are in need and the, and the poor and the marginalized. Uh, that is an absolutely bedrock, non-negotiable commitment uh, that the church is not the church if it is not actively working specifically for the flourishing of those, A, who have the most need of it uh, because they are currently have, have the least of it, and B, those who don't have anyone else but the church to come help them. Uh, uh, I think that th- those are those are core commitments. Uh, but I think the church has got to take a hard look at some of the practices we have in our anti-poverty ministry and ask if we are not uh, uh, following that other model of flourishing that's based on satisfying your natural desires rather than being in right relationship. Uh, I think we need to ask, to what extent do our anti-poverty ministries mend relationships, build build or repair relationships, or are we simply throwing resources at people? 
to the extent that we're simply throwing resources at people who have broken relationships, uh, in practice, the end result of that is all we're doing is helping people to live in that model of life where you think that the purpose of life is to satisfy your natural desires. Uh, uh, unfortunately, this you know people talk about the dangers of wealth. Well, this is one of the dangers of of wealth is that when you build your anti-poverty ministry around shoving money and resources at people, you've made money the most important thing that there is. There's an implicit, unspoken signal to people that money is what matters. Uh, and I like to look back. Uh, there's a wonderful history of this in Marvin Olasky's book, which is called The Tragedy of American Compassion. I think the title tells you the story that he unfolds. He looks back at the 19th century at the time of the Industrial Revolution, where uh, industrial cities were growing and people were leaving the countryside and coming to the industrial cities. And then particularly in America, you had an immigration factor where people were coming from countrysides in Europe and moving to industrial cities in America. Uh, and so you had this sudden growth of industrial cities and models of helping the poor that had worked in the agricultural economy where people lived in small local communities and relationships were generally strong. In these new industrial cities, the relationships had been disrupted. People were not living in places where they had centuries and centuries of relationships built up. Uh, and these models of helping the poor became extremely dysfunctional in the new social context. So American evangelicals, uh, uh, and not just evangelicals, but Christians in many traditions, uh, created the urban missions movement in the late 19th centuries uh, as a response to the fact that their own anti-poverty ministries were no longer working. Uh, and their core commitments were, we're not just going to give money to people. We're going to do that. We're going to help people. But we're also going to repair relationships. And if people have uh, uh, broken families or if people are not working when they could be working or if people have addiction issues or whatever it is, we're going to confront those problems. Uh, and we're going to use the gospel as our spiritual weapon to fight poverty. We're going to build relationships. And yes, we're also going to give money where that's appropriate. Uh, and it was tremendously successful. Unfortunately, it was so successful that people thought, well, hey, uh, you know, if a bunch of, if a bunch of local, uh, poorly funded, loosely organized people who don't know what they're doing uh, because they're not us, the smart, you know, big national people, if they can have effectiveness fighting poverty, well, then if we create a giant national bureaucracy that's heavily funded and, you know, uh, has the capacity to do much more, well, that'll be even better. Uh, and and gr slowly but surely, the idea that we're repairing relationships got lost. And these giant anti-poverty bureaucracies, not just government, church bureaucracies too, uh, but they all have this problem. Uh, it became about a bureaucracy that transfers re resources to people. Uh, and, and it became disconnected from the, from the uh, focus a century ago on building relationships and confronting behavioral problems. Uh, and above all else, you, having the gospel at the center of these anti-poverty uh, efforts. And as we look around now, I think we've reached a point where just like 100 years ago, uh, we, have a, we have a situation where our anti-poverty ministries are not effective. Uh, they're not helping to redress poverty. You know, we give away turkeys at Thanksgiving and we give away toys at Christmas and we fly over to Africa and we dump tons of money on, on you know, people in Africa and Southeast Asia and Latin America. Uh, but, but, but is it actually helping people reach the point where they're no longer impoverished and they don't need our help anymore, right? That's the goal, right? We want to put ourselves out of business.
uh, and we're not we're, we're just not doing that anymore. So, but I'm, I'm very encouraged by some of the efforts by people like uh, the Chalmers Center and Bob Lupton at FCS Ministries and Poverty Cure, uh, who are leading the way. I think in, in in returning to a focus on work, relationships, family, and the gospel. Well, this is a very exciting uh, and I think important area of inquiry for the church. And I appreciate the work that you're doing, and we appreciate you coming, uh, Dr. Forster, and spending this time with us today on the Beeson Podcast. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>